0: 2022 midterm elections are officially behind us. There was no red wave, and there wasn't really a green wave either. Across the country, just 15% of campaign ads mentioned energy or the environment in September. That rose slightly to 18% of ads in October, but it wasn't a dominant message. That's sort of surprising on the heels of Democrats passing a historic climate bill, which President Biden signed into law a couple of months before the election. And neither party really made climate change a top campaign issue, for or against. Does that signal we've entered a new era for climate politics? Could there even be room for collaboration on this front? Or will a divided government post-election give new life to old debates? This is Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and produced in partnership with Canary Media. I'm Julia Piper, the Political Climate podcast host. And with me is Brandon Hurlbutt, my Democratic co host and clean tech investor. He's also a climate advocate and founder of the government affairs firm Boundary Stone Partners. And we're joined by Shane Skelton, our Republican, a senior advisor on energy, infrastructure, and environmental policy, also at Boundary Stone Partners, as well as our resident expert on all things happening on Capitol Hill. So, as we speak, just a little over a week after Election Day 2022, We know Republicans will take a slim majority in the House of Representatives, while Democrats will maintain control of the Senate, bucking historical trends that typically disfavor the party that controls the White House. Now, none of this was assured. In fact, it's a very surprising result at the end of the day. And I know, Brandon, you were kind of nervous going into this year's election. Uh, I think you're pretty bold. I recall early on that some of the polling was in Democrats' favor, then a little uncertain as issues like the economy and inflation started to really show up in polls ahead of voting day. So how are you feeling now? Where did this all end? I know you have some thoughts to share.
1: Was I nervous? <laughs> <laughs>
0: you were saying that like this was going to be, you know, a tight one. Just acknowledging, you know, earlier some of the trends in the polling around access to women's rights and abortion. The Democrats looked like they were doing pretty well. Then it kind of waffled a little bit. The economy was showing up on all the polling. People really focused on inflation. It looked like Republicans were going to have a big, big day. But at the end of the day, they came up short. So Brandon, walk us through what you're thinking coming out of this, um, you know, stemming off of a red wave.
1: Well, we talked about a couple of different groups to focus on in the last episode. And those groups were women. We saw a lot of new registrations in battleground states. And we thought that that could be a reason the polling could potentially be off because they weren't accounting for those new voters in the voter pool. And what we saw was a not a red wave, but a row wave uh, <laughs> with women. Uh, and the second group we talked about was uh, young people. And the fact that you know over half of this country is now born after 1980, but Gen Z, people 30 years old or younger, canceled out every voter that is older than 65 years old. And they also voted in huge margins for Democrats. So that's a problem for the future for Republicans because they are voting in high numbers for Democrats, big margins, uh, and, they're, and they're turning out. And the third group that we talked about was the non-MAGA Republicans. Uh, and I can't wait to hear more from Shane about the future of this. But non-MAGA Republicans, you know, they could be people that were conservatives and became independents because they're turned off by Trump or the people that like disapprove of Biden, but they don't like this MAGA extremism and they're sort of caught without a home. And we thought, what could happen with those voters? Because if Democrats could peel off just a small slice of them, these elections were going to turn on a thin slice of votes. And we saw that to be the case. Democrats won independence in the midterms. And in people that said that they were somewhat disappointed in Biden, Democrats still won those voters by plus four, which is going against the grain of history. So those voters really mattered. And I think what we you know, we've talked a lot about on Political Climate, me personally, about my fear of the instability of the system because of these election deniers running for key offices. And what we saw in these governor's races and the secretary of state's races, those election deniers in battleground states that will control the apparatus for elections in 2024, all lost. And that's really important for climate because we can't. You know, deal with climate if we have a a system that is not stable here. We don't have a functioning democracy. Uh, So that's a huge win for us. Uh, And then we can get into more of what it means to have a Democratic Senate, you know, for climate. Uh, We can also talk more about some of the things that will be indicators for 2024, but I'm anxious to get Shane's reaction too and to talk about what is going to happen in the House of Representatives.
2: We had this conversation on our last podcast episode that we talked about the election. And Brandon, you made the case that you just made about, you know, would some non-MAGA Republicans vote Democrat? Um, I said they would not. Uh, I was partially wrong. But interestingly, they didn't vote at all on certain ballots. So if you look at Georgia, for example, Governor Kemp won by a dramatic margin. Uh, Herschel Walker obviously was behind. They have a runoff election. So I won't say lost, but he certainly got less votes uh, than Warnock. But a lot of voters just didn't vote. For that position. They didn't vote Democrat or Republican. They just couldn't make a, a vote that they felt good about. So that was something I did not anticipate. Um, I also saw going in that the Roe decision and um, democracy, quote unquote, democracies on the ballot, were polling around six and seventh as importance to voters. On exit polls, they polled as one and two. And so the polling going in just did not reflect the actual voting public that turned out and cast their ballots. You know, I'm supposed to be upset. I'm supposed to, you know, uh, throw a fit. But the reality of it is got to run candidates. Uh, Good candidates win elections. And so, you know, we have candidates in swing districts all over. And you have to do a few things as a Republican, especially in a sort of a centrist, uh, you know, uh, country club or suburban district. You have to have great candidates. you got to raise a lot of money. And the national mood has to be in your favor. We thought the national mood was in our favor. Turns out it wasn't. Uh, We raised a ton of money. And where we ran good candidates, and oftentimes we won. Uh, and where we didn't run good candidates, we didn't. And so getting to what Brandon just teed up, the consequences of that, like how do you govern in a, in a House Republican caucus uh, when you don't have control of the Senate and you'll have somewhere between you know a one and three seat majority, it's going to be really, really hard. Uh, I don't want to get into some nerdiness that our listeners won't care about, but there is a tool that has traditionally been in House rules called the motion to vacate the chair. That rule allows members of the House to basically call the Speaker up for a vote, almost like a recall. And that tool was in place when Boehner was Speaker. Um, It is one of the ways that he was threatened on several occasions. And it basically gives a minority of the Chamber um, more power than the majority of the Chamber and even the Speaker of their own party. That rule was done away with for all the obvious reasons during the Ryan tenure. And one of the concessions that some of the more MAGA members are are requesting is that that rule be returned into the House rules when we swear in the new Congress. So McCarthy won the support of the majority of the caucus. That is not how you become speaker. That's just how you become the party's nominee for speaker. He is the only Republican who can get 218 votes on the floor just because there aren't any others that can get close. But it's going to be a very difficult House to govern. It's going to have to focus even more on oversight and investigations than we initially thought, because there aren't going to be 218 Republicans who agree on a whole lot except for investigating the Biden administration. Um, So that may actually be sort of one of the negative consequences for Democrats of having the Republicans win by such a narrow margin. When you have few votes to give, it's easier to do things like raise the debt ceiling, pass appropriations bills, get the National Defense Authorization Act passed, things that are sort of the nuts and bolts of government. What I'm hoping for that's more interesting to this audience is that we get a chance to go through and do some of the hard work on making technical corrections on the Inflation Reduction Act, because traditionally what happens is that whenever you pass a thousand page bill, no matter which party does it, it's not perfect. It just is what it is. But when you pass any bill on a party line vote, the opposition party has no interest in working with you in this particular instance. Republicans have outstanding issues they'd like to clean up on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and Democrats will have some issues they'd like to clean up on um, the Inflation Reduction Act. So my hope is that cooler heads can prevail and at least do a couple of interesting things and help make some of these energy credits more useful, more accessible, um, and, and, and drive better outcomes. But I'm not going to lie to our audience, it's going to be a very, very tough three, six months, and maybe even two years.
0: Shane, what do you think that means for, maybe I don't even say climate policy, but clean energy and energy policy more broadly, things like, say, permitting, which is pretty bipartisan to to find streamlined permitting solutions, things like domestic manufacturing, maybe more on that front. So I'm thinking about those potentially bipartisan initiatives because the Republicans have such a slim majority in the House. Could they not collaborate with Democrats on some of the climate and clean energy things that are beneficial writ large and and find that common ground to push something through?
2: It's definitely possible. And this is going to sound like a non sequitur, but it's not. Uh, It really depends on who wins the messaging war at the national level, because right now what some Republicans are messaging is the reason we lost in the Senate and the House is that we had a bunch of, of weak sellout Republicans who voted for the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act. They supported Biden. Well, the truth is, every single one of those members won in the general election, every single one. That voted on the on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So if the narrative is we were too soft, we were insufficiently conservative, if Trump wins that battle, then it's going to be really difficult for Republicans on Capitol Hill to work on bipartisan legislation. If the facts come out, and they do exist, but once the data becomes clear that members who were not supported by Trump won re-election, members who voted on the bipartisan infrastructure law in favor of it won re-election, then I think we could get to a point where people understand that their voters supported them when they did things that their voters viewed were in their best interest. I'm really hoping we get there, but there's a lot that's going to play out with Trump's announcement last night or whatever that was, um, and, and sort of what the direction of the party tends to be moving forward.
3: Support for Political Climate comes from Climate Positive, a podcast from Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure the first U.S. public company solely dedicated to investing in climate solutions. With the climate crisis surrounding us, it's easy to let defeatism and complacency creep in. But there's so much to be hopeful for. Climate Positive Podcast features candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and change makers driving our climate positive future. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org.
1: things that struck me about the election was the house really came down to almost four states and you have the two largest red states florida and texas and florida really is a red state we learned uh, in this midterm that's bad for the democrats in 2024 but in those two states The Republicans gerrymandered those House seats really um, effectively. And then in the two biggest blue states, New York and California, where we have independent commissions draw the lines, there were more competitive elections. And what you had as a consequence of that was some moderate Republicans winning. So there was in New York, five Republicans that won House seats that voted for Biden. And you had a few in California uh, as well. So those members in order to win reelection in 2024, they can't be doing MAGA. They have to show something to their voters. What do you think are the chances that some of those members, in order to keep their jobs in 2024, might do something with Democrats on energy and climate?
2: I think there will certainly be a lot of willing participants. I mean, Republicans hold all four Long Island seats, um, New York, which has, I, I think, never occurred before. Republicans won in Miami Dade County. Um, those are voters who are interested in climate and, and the environment. David Valadeo in California Central Valley has been a leader on clean energy and climate as a Republican. It looks like he's going to survive re-election. There are definitely going to be 10 or 20 or 30 Republicans that I think would want to be productive on some bipartisan legislation. What worries me is that they don't control the floor. You can have 260 votes in theory, and it doesn't actually matter. Um, if the bill never comes to the floor. I think what's interesting about the California and New York seats, and I think it's underreported, is that the reason Republicans were able to succeed there is that all of the things that Republicans ran on, you know, crime and COVID shutdowns and school shutdowns that didn't resonate across the country where Roe was resonating. In California and New York, abortion is not an issue. It's something that they're able to do. They've always been able to do. They're going to continue to be able to do. So it wasn't as much of a driving factor, in my view, at least, uh, which is why seemingly in, in some sort of Inconsistency. Republicans did better in blue states uh, than they did in some red states.
0: Yeah, it seems like if some of the big external factors, some of the big wedge issues were not on the ballot, if it wasn't an election denying candidate or someone involved in January 6th or to do someone who outwardly objected to Roe, then absent those other big issues, to Shane's point, it seems like they were more run of the mill elections and they re- the results were kind of what you would have expected in this type of midterm. And the Republicans did better. But, yeah, if there was a big existential issue on the on the ballot, that's where people really showed up and Democrats did better than expected. So it's interesting to kind of put some barriers around what Americans seem to want from their leaders.
2: One last point on that is that there was an analysis I saw earlier that accounts for population, accounts for historical voting trends, accounts for geography and all these things. Trump candidates were outperformed by a full 5% by non-Trump candidates on the Republican side. Even Trump candidates outperformed Trump by 1% and non-Trump candidates outperformed Trump by 6%. That is my message going into the next several years is we have a party that can do some great things. We have a party that can compromise where necessary and and drive some good policy. Those are not the candidates we're putting forward. And we now know, back to back to back cycles, that is a losing strategy.
1: Yeah, one of the things I want to ask you, Shane. Uh, we can get to the Trump stuff later. You know, he's already announced, so we're already in the 2024 election. So for all of our listeners, if you're exhausted by the midterms, uh, we're already in the the next cycle. Um, You know, but I've I've talked a little bit on this. Podcasts about like the tyranny of the minority and these counter majoritarian like structures that we have with the electoral college and gerrymandering and the filibuster and all that. But one of those is this thing called the Hastert Rule, uh, which was a rule created by Speaker Hastert way back in the day where he would only bring something to the floor if it had the support of a majority of the majority. So in this case, with the Republicans, you know, having 219 seats or whatever, 220 seats. In order to bring something to the floor, would have to have the support of you know 110 Republicans or whatnot. You couldn't just pick off you know, a few of these moderates. Do you expect that that's going to happen? Will they will they create that rule again?
2: You know, I don't think it'll be formal, and I don't think it'll be necessary. Honestly, I think the bigger challenge is if you had 180 Republicans aligned, could you bring it to the floor? Uh, I think you know half of the Republican caucus wants to keep the government open. Half of the Republican caucus wants to raise the debt ceiling half of the Republican caucus wants to pass the Farm Bill and the National Defense Authorization Act. So I'm not as worried about the Hastert rule as I am about, can we get enough Republicans so that the amount of Democrats that would have to vote in favor is small enough that it isn't embarrassing um, and that it can actually get done? You know, 180 Republicans and and, um, 40 Democrats, fine. 110 Republicans, And 108 Democrats is not a really good look uh, when you're managing the House floor. So I think the Hastert rule sort of is going to informally be around and people are going to cite it uh, when they want to make a point about what you shouldn't be doing. But I'm actually not concerned about half the Republican caucus. I'm concerned about getting enough and a sufficient show of support on meaningful legislation to be able to pass it credibly without taking all the incoming that comes from relying too
1: heavily. This is important for our listeners because – you know, one of the takeaways from the elections is for the Democrats holding the Senate and potentially having 51 votes, it's easier to get nominations through. You know, there's critical people like David Crane, who's going to be the undersecretary for infrastructure at the DOE, which is controlling many tens of billions of dollars. You know, he's still hanging out there waiting for confirmation. And so being able to move nominees you know through that process to get confirmed by the senate to be staffing these agencies will be very critical to getting the inflation reduction act and bipartisan infrastructure law implementation done i know from being at the doe When you're missing those undersecretaries and assistant secretaries, it's like trying to run a major company without vice presidents and senior vice presidents. It really hurts. And so in order to get that money flowing into the right places and doing it efficiently, we're going to need to confirm a lot of people. And so by the Democrats keeping the Senate, that will enable that. But a threat to that would be, okay, if we go back to shutting down the government and doing debt ceiling, then people wouldn't be able to show up to work (laughs) to do do their job to get that money flowing to all the stuff that, you know, our listeners care about.
2: The biggest success that the Senate had, whether Democrats end up with 50 seats or 51 remains to be determined, is that you can confirm positions, um, which, you know, would probably have been entirely unlikely had Republicans claimed the 51st seat and judges. You know, while I prefer conservative judges, I think that uh, Leader Schumer knew that he would have had to spend the rest of this calendar year getting as many judges through as possible and as many confirmations done as possible, rather than focusing on keeping the government open, raising the debt ceiling and doing some of the other things um, that need to be done. So I think Democrats bought themselves at least two more years, at least in that regard, in getting their people in place and, and helping uh, implement these laws. One fun thing I could leave you guys with, if we're, if we're, if we're ready for a joke or we can wait till later, is um, the New York Post, a Rupert Murdoch-owned entity that you know was seen as a big Trump supporter, published a great, uh, I don't know what we'll call it, byline this morning where the New York Post looked like it always does. And on the very bottom sliver, it says, yeah, Florida man announces
1: bid for didn't even say that, just said Florida <laughs> man made an announcement.
0: Wow. <laughs> that
1: speaks volumes.
2: So hopefully we're seeing a change in the direction here.
1: What do you think is going to happen there? I've, you know, I've been so interested in this phenomenon. Is it Trump and his charisma that has had this hold? on you know a significant portion of this country or is it Fox News Rupert Murdoch and the conservative media like if the conservative media turns on Trump will those voters also turn and go to DeSantis or is Trump's hold so powerful that no matter what Fox is saying they're going to stick with him
2: I think that DeSantis really gave everyone an opportunity to make a change. Had he had a tight election or something like that, that would have been different. He has a 62 percent approval rating. I don't care what party you're in and what state you're in. That's nearly impossible. Um, He won with 60 percent of the vote. He won Miami-Dade County, a majority minority county. He made himself king of the party that night. And it made it much easier for media outlets to declare him as such. Ken Griffin, a huge Republican donor from Citadel, has already announced he's backing DeSantis, despite DeSantis not having announced. I think the entire conservative ecosystem, media, money, popularity is heading away from Trump and towards DeSantis. And I don't think that's an accident.
0: What's interesting to note about Governor DeSantis, too, is he has done some pro-environmental work uh, in protecting the Everglades. He did veto an anti-solar bill earlier this year. So he is one of those candidates who is Republican and conservative in many, many respects. But at least on some of the issues we care about, he seems more open to dialogue. And so that's just something for us to note, especially since he may be a presidential candidate. Um, Damn,
1: Julia, are you going to join Shane on the Desantis campaign?
0: (laughs) No, but I just have to point out the facts. Uh, Having done some work in Florida, and I was just sort of, you know, honestly surprised that he wasn't, you know, just sticking to some specific line on that. So I'm always encouraged when we make these issues transcend any one political party because they shouldn't, right? Like it's economic development everywhere, and Brandon's laughing at me, but uh, (laughs) no, no, I agree. It's going to be. I
1: mean, Shane, like, is this going to be like a civil war? I mean, Trump will not stop, right? I mean, what. What is going to happen?
0: He has
2: no oxygen. I mean, his oxygen comes from the media and the media is not coming. Florida man makes an announcement. I mean, come on. And then think about this. Matt Gates. Now, I am not a Matt Gaetz supporter. I will never be a Matt Gaetz supporter. He didn't show up yesterday. Ooh. He didn't show up to Trump's announcement. Like, there isn't a lot of support there anymore. And there's no people outside of a handful that really owe their political careers to Donald Trump. So if he's weak, he might be going to jail. He's unpopular. His candidates lose and you don't owe him anything. And the media won't cover him. I I don't I don't know what kind of war there is. I think there's just someone flailing.
0: Also, voters, if you've heard some voter interviews on TV and on radio recently, they sound a lot like Democrats when Biden was running. They were like, I like him, but I don't know if he can win. You know, this whole winnability thing has come up in a few interviews I've heard with Republican voters. So they seem to be looking at Trump like. Like him, he did a lot for the country, not opposed, but I just don't think he's got what it takes to win the election. So interesting to hear Republicans having those debates internally.
3: Political Climate is brought to you by Climate Positive, a podcast produced by the pioneering climate investment firm, Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure. Hosted by Chad Reed, Gil Jenkins, and Hillary Langer. Climate Positive features in-depth conversations with a broad range of business leaders, authors, advocates, and policymakers who are committed to making a difference. Listen to Max Rodriguez, an attorney with Pollock Cohen, unpack the arguments that support the EPA's authority to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act and what impact the language in the IRA may have in the ongoing legal battle. Or find out how Tim Brown, as CEO of Tradewater, scours the globe to aggregate potent gases and destroy them before they leak into the atmosphere. Climate Positive unpacks their guests' personal journeys while discussing the emerging energy and environmental trends that will drive us all toward a more just and sustainable future. Check it out and subscribe to Climate Positive wherever you get your podcasts. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together, they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org.
0: Thing I want to touch on before we uh, wind down here is the Inflation Reduction Act. Obviously, a big bill for clean energy and climate, billed as a 370 million dollars
1: billion, and Credit Suisse says 800 billion.
0: Right, 800 billion because the tax credits don't have caps on them, and this is a 10-year program. But I'm bringing it up because it didn't seem like that played a big role in the election at the end of the day. Like it wasn't. Super powerful for Republicans to bring up. They brought up like the fact that the IRS gets funding in the bill. That seemed to be their main uh, gripe with it. Democrats didn't really tout it a ton either. They talked a bit about the drug benefits and drug pricing benefits in the bill. But it seems kind of like the climate piece got through this unscathed. Or am I just missing something?
1: I think that's a huge win. When I was in the Obama administration, the House passed Waxman-Markey, the cap and trade bill the Senate did nothing with it. And then we lost 60 plus seats in the house and many Republicans ran against it. And some Democrats, Joe Manchin had the famous ad where he shot uh, a bullet through the cap and trade bill in his campaign ad. And now we're in a place where we passed this historic legislation. Republicans didn't, as you said, Julia, they did not attack it. And I think You know, there's not enough, you know, of the benefits that have happened yet because we just passed the law and we're still just beginning the implementation for Democrats to like truly run, you know, on it in a forceful way. But I do think over the next two years, we're going to see the opportunity for President Biden uh, and many others in Congress to be out doing ribbon cuttings at new manufacturing facilities, new project sites and all of that. And so I think the job for Democrats the next two years is to go out and sell the Inflation Reduction Act like we did not do with Obamacare initially. And there's going to be huge opportunities to do that because as the money starts flowing, and these things start getting built, we're going to be able to do a lot with that and, and show the political impacts.
0: I did see that in exit polls, people who were concerned about climate change voted, the vast majority of them voted for Democrats, which is cool, I think that shows that it was a motivating issue for Democrats, maybe speaks to your point about the youth vote, Brandon, that there's a lot of young people who are particularly mobilized around climate issues. And the exit polls show that that was a real motivating factor on the D side. But my concern there is that we haven't fully sold the entire nation on the benefits of these programs. So to your point about the Inflation Reduction Act, I hope we can start to broaden the discussion around what this actually does for everybody, because if it is only a partisan issue, I feel like we end up with these swings back and forth on climate policy, which is not great for long term decarbonization. As we've talked about on
1: the show, a lot of the benefits are in red states. In red counties, you know, of the law. And so it'll be interesting to see, like, do they show up? Uh, What happens there? What do you think, Shane?
2: That's a great point. And the comment I was just going to make, which I feel really strongly about, is that unlike past climate efforts, this bill reads as mostly industrial policy, certainly climate policy, but mostly industrial policy. And the question is, does that play out? If you've got, you know, Republicans all over the country in red states mining for critical minerals, working uh, and refining critical minerals, manufacturing solar panels, manufacturing heat pumps, manufacturing batteries, there are being factories stood up in places that need jobs. Some of these coal community provisions come to light, then it's going to be a huge winner. No one is upset when their economy is thriving, their kids have a good opportunity to get an education, they can pay their bills and they can afford you know, to do all the things they want to do. If those things materialize, Republicans will learn to love it. They may not go back and say the IRA was such a good bill. Thank God Joe Biden got elected. But they will certainly learn to appreciate those programs uh, and won't be able to elect individuals who are trying to roll them back or you know, prohibit future programs from coming online in the future.
0: And one last point I want to make is on the state level. Of course, We're talking about Congress and who's gonna control the House and Senate, but important to note that on election day, Democrats secured trifectas or control both the governor's office and both houses in the state legislature in Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Minnesota, which All those folks had run on aggressive climate policies or to some extent supported climate policies in those states. So that could be really interesting to see what happens there at the state level where a lot of real rubber hits the road on climate and energy policy. We're talking about utility regulation. We're talking about government procurement, you know, energy offices at the state level. Uh, So that's a real meaningful development Also, 17 governors who support climate policies that could collectively yield an 80% reduction in their state greenhouse gas emissions one election or re-election according to Evergreen Action. So again, 17 governors across other states don't have that full trifecta, but do have initiatives on climate change according to Evergreen Action. So lots more to watch here. The states uh, are interesting players in all of this too, Uh, but we'll have to leave it at that and lots more to unpack on upcoming episodes.
1: Julia one final question for you Uh, How are you dealing with all the Political climate impersonation Accounts on Twitter Uh,
0: (laughs) It's been tough to stop The parody accounts of us Everyone wants to create one since Elon Musk Introduced that $8 per month subscription fee Us and Eli Lilly (laughs) Oh dear Well see you all on Twitter We're at poly underscore climate That's the real one Don't be fooled Uh, Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again soon. I'm Julia Piper. Thanks to Kyle McDonald, our editor. Thanks to Maria Virginia Alano, our producer. Brandon and Shane, as always. Thank you. We'll be back again soon.